Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. We're talking today about business continuity and disaster recovery, and we're talking with Alan Berman, the Executive Director of DRI International, and with Anne-Marie Staley, Senior Business Continuity Manager with the New York Stock Exchange. Al, Anne-Marie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom. Al, let me throw the first question to you just to start us out here. Will you tell us a little bit about DRI International and your role there, please? Sure. DRI International is uh, celebrating its 21st year of education and certification in the business continuity arena. We are the premier certifier of individuals. Um, we have about 7,500 active certified members uh, in over 90 countries around the world. We conduct educational training courses in over 40 countries around the world. And I'm really the operations manager as well as the financial manager for DRI International. Very good. Anne-Marie, perhaps you could do the same and tell us a bit about yourself and your role in terms of business continuity disaster recovery with the Stock Exchange. Okay. I've been with my organization for 10 years. Um, in fact, when I started, the company was called Securities Industry Automation Corporation, which was otherwise known as SIAC. And we provided IT services for the New York Stock Exchange and the Amex. That's the American Stock Exchange. <laughs> SIAC and Amex have since merged with NYSE, and the NYSE has merged with Euronext, uh, which is a conglomerate of European stock exchanges. Uh, the NYSE Euronext also has interest in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, so as a result, we now have a very large global footprint uh, for the NYSE brand. I'm responsible for managing all aspects of uh, U.S.-based business continuity and disaster recovery efforts, and that, uh, that covers risk assessment, business impact analysis, disaster recovery scenario development and response strategies, everything from plans, exercising, training, and awareness campaigns. Well, it's a lot to keep you busy these days. Absolutely. <laughs> I've got a couple of questions I'd like to throw to both of you. And Al, let me toss this your way first. What are the biggest disaster threats that your organization is dealing with today? I think we're all aware of H1N1, uh, the threats posed by terrorism, threats posed by weather conditions and geology, but I think the threats that most of us deal with tend to be mundane, day-to-day -day activities that shut down organizations, uh, viruses, uh, loss of communication, uh, small fires, um, things that are, tend to be very mundane to us, which cause the greatest disruptions. And and we, for those people who do this on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm sure Anne-Marie will tell you the same thing, we more worry about, you know, pipes bursting and telephone mm -hmm. networks going out than we do uh, the, big, the big hurricane coming. So despite the fact that you know a lot about the big events, it's the small events that tend to incapacitate us. Right, I would agree wholeheartedly with Al, um, and just add that, you know, one of the biggest threats that we face, of course, is a loss of staff or IT infrastructure, uh, both of which are ultimately our most important assets. You can have all the systems and redundancies in the world, but if you don't have the people to run it, it doesn't do much good, and vice versa. Well, you're exactly right. Amory, what do you find to be the greatest regulatory challenges now for yourself and your organization? Frankly, I, I think it's the lack of a global unified regulation. Uh, with more corporations having such a global footprint, we constantly have to take into consideration, you know, the country, the state, local and agency laws. 
which can not only vary enormously, even within the same country, but they're constantly changing to reflect you know, new best practices and legislation. In the financial service industry, just in the U.S., uh, regulatory requirements by the SEC or the GAO have different and sometimes conflicting ramifications in Europe, where right now the European Commission holds sway. Um, there's currently a proposal for a European College of Supervisors, um, which only highlights the fact that the financial industry oversight within European countries is also very fragmented. Now, Al, you deal with different countries as well as different industries. What do you find in general to be the greatest regulatory challenges for professionals that are dealing with business continuity and disaster recovery? I think probably the biggest challenge is a total lack of knowledge as to which regulations affect them as they go around the world. And I think Anne Marie alluded to that. We, it's just in the United States we have probably 84 different guidances, regulations, standards covering business continuity. As we go global, it becomes uh, even more apparent that we do need to have what everybody's looking for is this convergence. Um, and I think the other thing from a corporate point of view is now that faced with voluntary corporate certification in emergency and disaster management and business continuity and finding those people who are really qualified to be able to certify companies. So, Al, given the kind of challenges you've talked about in the regulatory landscape, what are some of the initiatives that DRI is leading these days? Well, DRI is... Uh, an organization that certifies business continuity professionals so they can help companies. But one of the things that we just discussed is the regulatory environment and the certification environment. We have just uh, produced a new certification in, in, in conjunction with NFPA, National Fire Prevention Association, to train auditors and certify auditors, auditors and lead auditors to be able to perform valid certification audits in business continuity, emergency, and disaster management for corporations. Um, the initiatives with NFPA, we are also working with organizations like the American Red Cross, um, the Chamber of Commerce, the DHS, and FEMA in trying to bring some coalition of regulations and standards so people actually know what it is they can do um, and not be overburdened by the regulation, but actually become more prepared by doing these things. Now, Anne-Marie, for a professional such as yourself working in the field, what do you see as the role of an organization such as DRI International? Well, besides, pri besides providing training um, in current best practices and certification, um, DRI International has always served as an excellent networking tool for me. Um, through different events and their presence at uh, many different industry uh, conferences and symposiums. And also having the certification um, in my field shows my employers and clients that I do take my career very seriously and I think that's very important uh, in, in that we do have, uh, we have a standard and that we can reach a benchmark and, and have that accreditation. And certainly this is a role that's gotten a lot more prominence in the last several years. Absolutely. Uh, it's a very growing um, it's a growing field. I think uh, a number of magazines have already named it as one of the top seven uh, professions, um, growing professions out there. See, Al, your travel yeah. schedule is not going to lighten now. No, but as an aside, the Department of Labor is actually 
going to recognize business continuity as a profession this year. That's fantastic. That's a first? About time. Yeah, yeah we've been working with them for about seven months, and, and they're, they're separating it from IT and disaster recovery and emergency response. And I think it, it's a response to the marketplace saying that there really is a requirement for people who are trained in business continuity. Absolutely. Now, Al, the big conversation that we've been hearing for the past several months has been about H1N1, or the so-called swine flu. What should organizations be doing to prepare for this, particularly in the U.S. when we expect the flu season to be active? And what are they actually doing? Well, I think two or three things have to happen. One is there's a whole administrative piece to this that, that companies are finally starting to look at. For example, what is their human resource policy about people being absent? Uh, as you know, H1N1 and H5N1, in most of the pandemics, require social distancing, i.e. the ability for people to work at home. And there aren't corporate policies in place to deal with that now. So that becomes one of the big issues when you start to deal with it. Obviously, the preventive measures will you know, will help to do this, um, but I, I think that organizations have to look at triggers there. For example, in the United States, you can't look to the federal government. You have to look to the municipal triggers because the municipalities, just like in New York when they closed all the schools, was a municipal decision. So my, if I were sitting with corporations and I do this every day, the first thing I do is tell them, look to your local health organizations, look to your local police and fire departments so that you can at least get information disseminated because the triggers will be pulled by the, by the state and then the municipality and, and certainly not the federal government. So it, it's important, especially if you're a large organization in multiple states, to be able to reach out to those resources and reach out to them now before something happens. What would you Absolutely. say? Absolutely. No, go ahead, please. Andrew. A lot of companies had, I'm sorry, a lot of companies had actually mapped their initial pandemic planning to the WHO phases, the World Health Organization, and found that they weren't sufficient. They only served to explain the transmissibility, not the lethality uh, factor. And uh, so that was a, a big lesson learned that, uh, like Al said, it should be based on municipalities. So given your organization's global scope, Anne-Marie, how have you approached H1N1? Well, we've actually developed local pandemic teams and global pandemic teams, and we've uh, discussed, identified uh, those triggers that uh, Al uh, mentioned, and, of course, reviewing all of our policies for sick leave and travel and social distancing. Um, and we've also taken a look at uh, screening processes actually for people coming into our facilities, uh, which we realize that not everyone can do because sometimes that can get a little bit uh, uh, expensive and consuming with using some of the new uh, equipment out there like thermoscans, you know, these uh, machines that take your temperature in a second. Wow. Um, and we've also uh, started, you know, reviewing all of our recovery procedures, you know, supply chains, vendor contact information, making sure... Uh, those teams and uh, recovery lists are up to date, as well as taking a look at information technology and how our ITIL process and change management process is currently. One of the things you don't want to do if you do have uh, a high staff absenteeism and everyone's working from home is to deploy a major upgrade or change at that time. So uh, we've been uh, taking a look at all those, um, those processes. Well, it sounds like, one, you've, you've got a good plan in place here, but two, maybe this has given you an opportunity to get some of those those global synergies that, that you wanted to see. 
Absolutely. That's one of the uh, unintended benefits <laughs> uh, for BCP. Now, Al, from what Anne-Marie has described, New York Stock Exchange is, is a good example of the preparation for H1. Not only are they talking about it, but they're actually doing it. Give us a sense of, of you know, what is the actuality? How prepared are organizations for an outbreak of pandemic if it, if it indeed does return? Well, I, I think on paper, um, everybody looks like they're prepared. I think the issue is going to be, uh, again, and Amory talked about this earlier, the, the critical nature of having the right personnel available, um, distribution of Tamiflu, which has to be taken within the first 36 hours of symptoms so that critical people can show up at work and, and do their job, um, making sure that their families are taken care of so that they can concentrate on their job. But the rudimentary pieces of how do you distribute drugs and, and, and antibiotics in a relatively chaotic uh, environment is, is critical. Um, and so I think that during the next few months, you're going to see a lot of organizations try to figure out what the distribution is. After all, if you can treat it early, it has very little effect on most people. Um, you treat it late, and then the, the degree of seriousness uh, increases dramatically. So the ability to start treatment immediately is important. The other thing is the IT environment. Uh, testing an IT environment with 80% or 70% of your staff working from home is really a product of how well your organization is equipped from a virtual networking point of view, um, people think about the, the collapse of the Internet, but that's not the likelihood. The likelihood is virtual um, phone networks will go down first. So that testing has to be taken, taken now and has to be stress tested now while things are relatively quiet. That makes sense. One last question for each of you. Amory, I'd like to throw this your way first, and then Al, if you'd like, pick up after her answer. For organizations, unlike the stock exchange, that might not be sure they have the right plan in place or haven't updated or tested their pandemic plan yet, what advice do you give to them? Well, it's very similar to what we were talking, Al and I were talking about before. This is the time now they should to begin reviewing the procedures they do have in place, uh, taking stock of what their mission critical or critical processes are, whether they have the right people in place, whether they uh, have some cross-training, as we know, the H1N1 uh, doesn't respect rank or <laughs> uh, company. It, it will, may hit anyone, and we don't know who it will. Um, so making sure that they have uh, those uh, contingencies in place, the right people, cross-training, up-to-date documentation, uh, looking at their vendor supply chain, um, all those are very important things that they should do. Well, uh, my personal point of view is a disaster is a terrible time to start testing your plant. So I think that people do have to start looking at their plan. And, and it starts with personnel and making sure that personnel are available and that they can be uh, connected remotely. Um, detection is obviously important, and, and that will be in a lot of organizations, security departments who are not used to this, so they need to be tested. Uh, coordination with hospitals and how do you deal with people who do show up at work. But I think that most people will look at the planning process from four or five facets if you are. One, obviously, technology and its ability to deal with remote. Two is personnel, making sure personnel can work from home or that there is a location that they can. 
Three is the facility. Make sure that the facility does have points where you can capture people coming into the building who obviously look ill. And four is to make sure that the management of the corporation, senior management and those people responsible, communicate well so that people understand the situation and, and don't overreact to it and understand that the organization is in control. It's well said. Al, Anne Marie, I want to thank you both for your time and your insight today. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking with Al Berman with DRI International and Anne-Marie Staley with the New York Stock Exchange. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.